Let me see you put them up. Reach the skies, touch the stars up above. Cause it's one time for the underdog. I'm Patrick Bedev, your host of ITM, and today's sit-down is with Sean Atwood. Sean Atwood used to be a stockbroker out of Arizona making a half a million dollar year income, and all of a sudden, he changed his entire life by getting into selling ecstasy, and all of a sudden, he started moving a lot of ecstasy where he ran into Samuel DeBolt Gravano. Anyways, there's a lot of lessons into this that you can learn. Enjoy today's interview with Sean Atwood. Thanks for uh, being with us here in ITM. It's a pleasure, Patrick. Great to see you here in London. Your story is very interesting, I got to tell you. Thank you. So walk us through, before you became, you know, you got into this world, who was Sean Atwood in high school? Decades before bumping heads with Sammy the Ball, as a teenager in this country, I didn't grow up with much money. But when I chose economics in my high school, only six of us chose it. The teacher saw I had an aptitude for it. He started giving me classes on my own, explaining the Financial Times, all the numbers, how the stock market works. Then when I was 16, I went to my dad for money to invest. He told me to bugger off. I hit my nan up and she gave me 50 pounds, like just under um, $100. And I doubled it, first day of dealings on British Telecom shares. So I was hooked. At 16? At 16, telling all my mates in my little town, I'm gonna go to America, make a million, fly all you guys over. That was my dream. So from there on, so at what point did you make it to the States? Okay, so I went off to college, did A-levels, did business studies at uni, and then headed out to Arizona because I used to visit my aunts there as a kid, and it really dazzled me, the lifestyle in Arizona. Arizona dazzled you, the lifestyle in Arizona. I'm I'm coming from a little chemical manufacturing town in the Northwest. That makes sense. Planes coming in, you see the swimming pools in the backyards. Yeah, I get it. But let me ask you, personality-wise, High school, were you, were you the good grade? Were you the good kid? Were you the popular kid? Did you date the hottest girl? Were you the athlete? No, I was, I was getting beat up by the rugby players. I was one of the last to grow in size. I had anxiety. I almost got beat to death by some drunks and that compounded my anxiety. So when I went out to, to clubs and stuff, I wouldn't dance, I was too self-conscious. I had this shyness. When the rave scene began, I took ecstasy, wouldn't stop dancing all night long, wouldn't stop making friends with strangers. <laughs> and that became my crutch. Over 10 years, for over 10 years, I'm doing drugs. People seeing this wild and crazy party animal. But I was self-medicating for PTSD from almost getting beat to death by these drunks. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, and how'd you get introduced to it the first time? Was it just you went to a club? Yeah, what happened was, you to in, in this country, in the 1980s, to get in a club, you had to dress in a suit and tie, and it was very snotty, like snooty. They wouldn't let you in the bounce if you weren't dressed right. The kids were sick of it. They started breaking into warehouses, breaking into airplane mm. hangers, wearing all this colored clothing, and taking ecstasy and just dancing all night long at these illegal parties. So it was like a revolution in music. It was suits back in the days called nightclubs. Yeah, in the 80s. And the kids were sick of, you know, you had to line up, and the bouncers would look at you, and if you're not dressed right, you're not getting in. So we were like, you know, F that. We're just going to start doing our own thing. Breaking into warehouses, airplane hangers, wearing all these psychedelic um, colors, baggy jeans, British night sneakers. Ah, British night sneakers. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I remember those. So this is what year, by the way. This is what year would you say this is? Late 80s? This is late 80s, early 90s, because I went to Arizona in 91. What happens when you go to Arizona? I know you got into the stock market yourself. How did that happen for you? So I arrived in Arizona as an illegal alien. Got no tr- uh, work visa. Illegal alien. Yep. Okay. Just got my student credit cards. So I'm now in a race against running out of money on my student credit cards to make money. Join a brokerage. 
and quickly learn it's commission only. They sell me, I've got to do th these classes for months <laughs> to get my Series 7. I said, I haven't got time to do the classes for the Series 7. Put me in for it right now. And then they said, well, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll take a chance on you. It's like the guy running it was like a mafia, mafia kind of guy with his mannerisms. Um, I think they were hooked into the mafia, this, this penny stock outfit it was that I just got my... That's how I got my foot in the door. Penny stack outfit, yeah, like similar Wolf to Wall Jordan Street. Belfort. Yeah, exactly he was also same. Smile and dial, mirrors on your quad. You gotta be pacing with a 25 foot curly cord because pacing smiling brokers make more sales. You're only as big as your numbers are up on the board for the month. Exactly like Wolf of Wall Street. And that's the world you came out of. I was, it was a baptism of fire. I quickly realized <laughs> what they were doing. So talking about power moves, me and another rookie broker we realized these guys were just putting people in chop stocks we got some newspaper articles about them photocopied the entire accounts from the entire brokerage we were sneaking at night photocopying all the accounts we jumped ship to a more stable outfit and took all of these accounts with us and so what happened then well they were threatening to um the, the, the guy the boss you know he was the threats were getting issued and we went out and bought guns yeah, so yeah, they were threatening to blow up my partner's car, some of these guys, yeah. I mean, it's a competitive world if you're doing that. <laughs> you, 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 so late at night, you're getting all the files, the clients, and you're calling them with another place. Yeah. But you're still doing penny stocks. No, no, when we moved, we, we saw what th those guys were doing. So then we were like actually trying to make our clients money by putting them into stocks like Motorola, we had the brick cell phone mm, out and stuff like yes. that, in Intel. So how well did yeah. you do? People wanted to do high-risk investments, taking these clients over from the penny stock world. So what I looked at was America West Airlines junk bonds. Mm -hmm. They were trading 10 cents on the dollar and they went back up to par. Yeah, so I did really well on them. Didn't sell them at par, but sold them at 100% return. Motorola was another good one. Because of the brick cell phone, they were doing great as well. They were going up consistently. And so the point where my commissions, I was grossing half a million dollars a year in commission five years in. I was the top guy in the office. I had enough money to retire from it, but I was starting to get back into the party hmm. scene. And I was thinking, do I want to go in the rat race and get up at six, you know, five in the morning, six o'clock in the morning sales meeting, or just make money from the party scene? And that, that, that excitement and greed took over. First of all, which BD were you a part of? What was a broker dealer? Do you there was various ones over the years. Okay. And the last one was Joseph Charles, it was clearing through Burr Stearns. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Were you yeah. ever with a Morgan, Merrill? Were you ever with no, any No, um, Merrill offered me a hundred grand to move over to them and because they wouldn't let me sell short shares and they wouldn't let, they, they wanted me to buy their proprietary uh, companies, I, I refused. How did you get into the world where you said, what if I start selling? Well, was that accidental? Was it intentional? How did that take place? The rave scene has such a big impact on me in this country. One of the goals I set was when I make a million in America, I'm gonna transfer that scene over to the Sonoran Desert. And in the beginning, I am just buying pills because I've got so much money and showing off and giving them away to my friends. This is the transition point now where I'm still in the stock market as a broker. But then I'm seeing, you know, when you give away drugs for free, you attract a lot of friends and then mm -hmm. I'm seeing the business potential of it. The local dealers could only supply, you know, up to 100 pills at a time found out they were getting them out of LA. So I thought, as an experiment, I'll buy a thousand pills, see how long it takes to get rid of these. They were gone in a weekend. Yeah. A thousand in a weekend. Yeah. So yeah. what were you buying them out of LA for? All right, so this was before I really knew the yes, full, the full knowledge. So in LA, in the beginning, my first transaction was probably, I don't know, around $12 for a thousand pills. And they were going for 25 to $30 in the clubs. So you're 2X in them immediately. 
Yeah, yeah. So now, are you were you selling it yourself? Death? Were you moving the thou yourself, or were you having other guys? Were you sell it sixteen? You know, I make the four on it. How? I'm talking right off the bat. Not right once it became a business. Right off the bat, I've got my business partner bodyguard with me, Wildman, this huge guy from my hometown. He's like my muscle, and we're in an apartment. He's in. He's moved into with some other people. And we're throwing these parties every weekend, and that was when we brought those thousand pills back, and we just we just sold them all out through that party. So you and you and another person sold a thousand and yeah, people were coming and they'd just buy like fifty or a hundred at a time, and they'd just take them off to another party. Yeah, and it, they just went throughout the weekend. So twelve twenty-five to thirty, you buy it for twelve, you sell it for twenty-five to thirty. So what did that weekend do to you? Well, not all of them. I would say went twenty-five to thirty. If someone buys a hundred, I'm giving them a deal. Sure, of course. But you know, I'm seeing this fast. Um, almost doubling of my money, and I'm thinking, I can just be doing this, kicking back, having the time of my life, you know, just hanging out with wild and crazy night people, or uh, working all these long hours, and I sacrificed my slow and steady progress. How quickly was your transition away from production? You know, was it yeah. like, was it immediate? You were like, oh, I can't even be seeing myself doing it. Was it like a three to a six month process? I was having so much fun, and then going in the office so burnt out because of all of the drugs I was doing. I was doing up to 20 hits of ecstasy on the weekend, and throwing other drugs in the mix. Even taking the Xanax didn't um, recover me properly. I was getting so burnt out because of all the pills and the long hours. I needed to sleep after the party, and the transition was quite fast. So what's fast? One week, two weeks, a month? Was it? I think Wildman, before he got deported and banned for being a menace to society, was in the country for a couple of months. And it was during that, what during his visit was my transition, a couple of months. Couple of months, got yeah. it. So you leave the BD, you're not doing anything anymore. What are they saying? What are they thinking about you being gone? Do right. they know so, what you're doing or not yet? I'm sure some of the guys were partying with you, so. It was such a big deal for me to just to go from one to the other. I didn't even tell them. And my parents actually called the brokerage and asked where I was. And they said they'd heard I'd been my car was found burnt out in Mexico, caused this panic amongst my family. From being in this legitimate person to going into this criminal underworld, I didn't know how to, you know, what to say to the, the, the BD people, so I just, I just ceased communication. <laughs> yeah. were, were there any signs in high school of you doing uh, uh, creative activities where somebody would say, I think one day he's probably going to be doing something like you were doing? During lunch hour, I would run to the corner shop, buy sweets like pear drops and strawberry bonbons, and run back to the school and sell them for double the price. And I'd also get like dinner coupons for them as well and get my dinner with the dinner coupons. <laughs> <laughs> so sales, you've been selling for a while. I've so. always had a natural sales personality, yeah. Got it, even yeah. in high school. So you, you're Even in high school, I was an entrepreneur, a budding entrepreneur, yeah. yeah. So wholesale to retail. So, so now you have this weekend, you tell yourself, I spent twelve thousand dollars. I bought a thousand pills. You know, I'm coming back, turning these for twenty-five to thirty. Or if somebody buys a hundred wholesale, say twenty bucks. This was the easiest ten grand I made in a weekend with your buddy, your you know bodyguard, you know your security. From there, you what are you thinking next? Okay, I can scale it. How soon did you start expanding to a whole different level? We were getting them out of LA for a year or two, and. My demand in Arizona now is so high, these guys out of LA can only provide 5,000 pills at a time. So I figure out they're getting them out of Holland. So I can't leave the country 
I start selling people over to Holland with testing kits you could buy from a website called Dance Safe. An ecstasy pill should be 100, 125 milligrams of MDMA and clay, usually like a beige color or a faded color. Often the pills that have got artificial stuff in them are colored, but sometimes the color can just be food dye. But the color is often a heads up. And I was cognizant that if I'm selling tens of thousands of pills, someone could potentially die. It's extremely rare, but it's usually when there's a bad ingredient. So my people took these testing kits and it changes, it goes like a blue purple color. So nobody ever died off the pills and um, they brought back such a pure product. I was getting, you know, known as English Sean's pills, the Bank of England's pills. It got to the point where the competition with their colored pills was saying, you know, these are English Sean's. They were trying to capitalize on my brand. English Sean's. Yeah, yeah. So what was your uh, biggest order you got from Holland? Biggest order was 40,000 hits on one smuggling mission. Yeah, and this was before 9-11, so don't try this at home if anyone's watching this. But back then, you could just put thousands of pills into your luggage, in pillowcases, or in, uh, screwed into computer towers, and get on a plane. I had one woman, she got on a plane with pills in vitamin jars, landed at Sky Harbor Airport, got stopped, customs took her into a room, opened the luggage, put the pills on a table and said, what are they? And she goes, vitamins. And they said, cool, put them back in the luggage. I said, have a nice day. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. So at the 40,000 mark, how much are you paying for them at that point? At the peak of this now, in the late 90s, my organization is structured like a corporation. So we've got heads of each faction under me, which vary from 10 to 20, depending upon what's going mm -hmm. on at that mm -hmm. point in time. So we've got 10 to 20 different factions over time. So I'm fronting out now the heads of the organization up to 5,000 at a time, maybe at $10 or maybe $8, depending on my mm -hmm. relationship with that person. They then front them out to their middle people at 15 or 20, depending on how much they take. And then they get sold into the clubs and to the raves at 25 to 30. So if I'm bringing in 40,000 at $3 or less, $2, Got to add in all the, all the smuggling costs, the transport costs and the legal costs as well. So if I'm bringing them in, let's say no more than $3 and I'm getting 40,000, front them out at 10, quarter of a million. Quarter yeah. of a million per 40. Yeah. And how much were you, do you remember what you were moving per month? Was it, is, like what's your peak month? So it was sporadic. We had quarter of a million months, only like every, I don't know, every two or three months, something like that. But over time, it was four years I was doing this. So it added up. I wasn't dealing as many as fast as Sammy the Bull. But like the 10 people he said over time, it was more than he dealt. You ran for four years. I think he ran for a year and a half. Yes. So you, so you sold more than Sammy the Bull. And at the time, he was also in Arizona. Yes. Did you guys ever face off? Did you ever have a sit down? Was there any meeting like the heat scene in the movie where Pacino and De Niro were sitting and talking? <laughs> I locked down the Arizona rave scene because I was an early entrant and it was a lot of competing little clicks those little clicks would come to me as the bank of england to lend money for the parties and the drug deals whatever now some of those little clicks had disputes so me and Wildman would mediate those disputes and you know in the end we incorporated all these different little clicks into my organization so i had the local people locked down all of a sudden these new kind of ecstasy dealer started showing up in the club scene and at the raves, like steroid head jocks. He had the devil's dogs, these white supremacists, out of, I think they were out of Mesa or Chandler. 
these, these big dudes. And I'm like, you know, who are these guys stepping on my toes? So we're all getting really curious because we had no idea where they were coming from. Now, I was married to a woman. She'd done a university degree, but she was also doing lesbian internet porn. She had a bisexual lover, a female, and she said, look... That you knew of. Yeah, 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 that, that, that I encouraged. Um, <laughs> and she said, look, her girlfriend's boyfriend is one of these new dudes, and he wants to meet you and discuss business opportunities. So I still don't know who they work for. So I take one of my bouncers with me, Rosetti. He's packing a gun to this nightclub. And my wife and we go there, and Rosetti hangs back with the gun. They don't know he's with me. This the guy, the Spaniard, comes out and he goes, you know, come into the, you know, the VIP room, I want you to meet my business partner. I go back there on my own. Rosetti slipped back as well, he's watching me. And then this massive, you know, six foot, six and a half foot plus guy comes out. I'm sat down on a sofa between these two guys. You're sitting in between these yeah, two guys. Yeah, the, the, the big guy told everyone to sofa to, to get the out of the, 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 the yeah. area really and leave the room. And we sit down on this sofa. And like I said early on, you know, I'm taking drugs because it makes me wild, but inside I'm this shy, anxious person. Mm -hmm. person. But I took GHB going in, and the GHB is hitting me when we're, on, when we're sitting down on the sofa. And I, I, he introduced me, this the Spaniard and the, and the other guy, Mark, I think the other guy's name was. So I just playfully grab both, grab both of them, both of their knees, right, like right. Big here. guy sitting yeah, next as, to you. As we're sitting, then I grab both of them, their knees. I'm thinking, you know, I'm English, Sean. <laughs> I've got a reputation to uphold with these guys. I've got to show them I'm a bit of a crazy mofo. So I, I grabbed their knees, and um, you know they were looking like I was a bit crazy. Um, they were like, "Look, Sean, we're moving a lot of pills, and we know you are." and we know you're locked down with the local people, you've got a good relationship with them. How would you feel about moving pills? Our pills will give you a good price. And I said, look, I'm aware of you guys' pills. They're those colored pills. I'm getting pills from Holland. I've got a reputation to uphold. I'm not gonna mess around with these colored pills. A lot of them counterfeits made in America. So the Spaniard, he was, he was okay with, with it. He was calm, but the other guy, he was like, how, you know, how who the f do you think you are disrespecting our pills? One call to Sammy the Bull and we can have you taken out to the desert. Now, I was aware of John Gotti and all that making, you know, news. And I'm thinking, are these guys just, just talking shit? What? At this point, have you heard of the name Sammy the Bull yet? Like, From the John Gotti new on, on the news. But uh, no, I'm talking local Arizona that he's going up against no? you. So you haven't heard Sammy the I Bull? I think that maybe these guys are plastic gangsters throwing this name out, trying Got to scare it. me. Got it. But when I got out and told my bouncer, he's like, you know, hey, you know, this is this is serious now if, if it is the bull because um, he's murdered up to two dozen people. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm high on, on GHB and this is starting to sink in a bit as we're going out of there. So how did that end? How did that end with them? All right, so it didn't end well because I told him, look, I'm staying with my people and doing my own product. There's, there's enough room for us to coexist but I will give you guys a heads up. Since you guys have been running around in the clubs and the raves saying you're the biggest drug kingpins since, you know, whatever, a lot of heat has started to come to the scene. Me and my security people are noticing undercover cars with cameras, taking pictures, police coming in, pretending to be from out of town, trying to set up ecstasy deals. Nothing like this was going on before you guys came into town. 
So they were like, all right, well, Spaniard was like, okay, well, thanks for the heads up. And I said, look, it's not each other we've got to worry about, it's the cops. Eventually that, that proved accurate. So let me ask you, at this point, you, you said you, you went four years, he went a year and a half. Yeah. At what part of your four was it that he got in? 98, 99, around then, that those guys started popping up into the scene. 99 is when they started popping up in the scene. I'm guessing. Okay. I'm guessing. Got yeah, it. So yeah. you're, you, you've been going for a year, year and a half mm -hmm. while they pop up in the scene. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you never had a face-off directly with Sammy. There was no... What happened was, well, I was getting protected by the New Mexican Mafia, so I felt a fair degree of safety because even with those guys coming into town, the New Mexican Mafia were formidable. I mean, these guys have got a lot of heavy-duty stuff locked mm -hmm. down. I'm thinking, these guys have got my back. They're more powerful than these guys. The drugs is telling me, you know, you, you, you're comparatively safe. But what happened was, my bouncer, when we left that meet, said, how long will the piece last if this is re for real? They lured my top sales guy, Skinner, who was moving a lot of product for me, to a nightclub in Scottsdale under the pretenses of buying pills from him, took him into the men's room, knocked his teeth out, knocked, took tens of thousands of dollars off him. That was the heads up that things were getting heavy. Yeah, I, I moved to Tucson after that. How strong are you at this point? Meaning how deep are you at this point? Not, not deep of movers, deep of strength, power, street cred, yeah. you know, enough gangs on your side yeah. or the, the right muscle on your side that people don't want to cross you. My philosophy always was, if this goes to the violence or murder level, it's a whole new ball game. The police are going to look at us differently and then we're going to get sent down for a lot of time. Yeah, I've got the New Mexican Mafia behind me, but utilizing that is going to cause me even bigger problems in the long run. Just the fact that they're behind me and the people know is got enough it. of a deterrent to give me that street cred yeah. and keep the debts getting paid. So I moved over 100, about 100 miles or so away to Tucson in a million dollar house on a mountain in a gated guarded community, Sin Vacas where you couldn't even get into that neighborhood without going through a guard who had to call the house. Bill Banana was up there, and further along the mountain range was um, Paul McCartney. Very familiar with that area. Yeah, oh, beautiful, yeah. most beautiful place yeah, I've ever lived in my life. That's where people in Tucson want to live. That's where the yeah. people of Tucson, it's like a dream. I would go to the mailbox and there would be deer around the mailbox. The lightning would bounce down the mountain off yeah. the house. And when there was a, the rain, a waterfall would, would form at the side of the house in a little stream. Oh, it was. It's amazing. So at this point, uh, what, what do you, you're by yourself, no one's around. Your wife's not around, your muscle's not around, your friends are not around, the party scene's not around, your wife's girlfriend's not around, no one's around, you're by yourself. What are you telling yourself? Are you telling yourself, Sean, you're in too deep, you gotta figure out a way to get out? Or are you saying, let's double down, let's go to another state? What are you thinking? I am thinking, I'm safe now in Tucson. I've got a right-hand man who I trust with my life, who I know would take a bullet for me, Cody Bates. He's dead now. He was doing the rounds in Phoenix. He had rented an apartment out just for the cash. Only me and him knew where it was. So I don't even have to leave the house now. Everything's just running automatically while these guys are doing whatever they're doing in Phoenix. So I'm just trying to enjoy the money, doing all this crazy stuff. I've still got my security team, my bouncers, but what happened there was a challenge to my dominance, let's say, when there was a situation whereby my wife went on a mission with one of my guys and they ended up sleeping together. Yeah, so we had, what happened there? So we had to set an example there and um, 
to make sure everybody wasn't trying to overthrow me because even my guy Skinner now, who was my top sales guy, he was smoking sham and crystal meth and crack. And cause I'd moved out of Phoenix power play now, he's thinking he's gonna take over my business with this other one of my security guys. And they're spreading words that I'm going down and that they're gonna be taking over and that my people needed to work for them. So we had to get that in check. What does that mean? I can't comment any further on okay, that. Okay, got yeah, it. Yeah. Got it. So Cody, Cody, was Cody... Cody uh, Bates. Right, Cody yeah. Bates, did he... Uh, he's no longer around. Did Cody Bates die when he was with you or was it afterwards? Uh, other incidents? Cody Bates, the reason I made him my right-hand man and head of the security team was because he didn't get high. So all me and my, all my friends are running around like lunatics on these club drug cocktails and he's babysitting people, taking people home, making sure nobody's ODing and stuff like that. When I first met him, he was suicidal and we were like family. So when we all got sent down, he went back into that suicidal depression, got on heroin, self-medicating. His family sent him to a rehab run by Scientologists. They put him on a drug that had a side effects of suicide and he hung himself. At the Scientology Center? Yeah, hung himself. I wrote a book, Party Time, about all of that and the publisher, Random House, made me contact absolutely everybody, have them sign legal papers to say it was accurate and they wouldn't sue me and they wouldn't sue the publisher. And what I did was I interviewed all these people on Skype, recorded the conversations, and there was so much more information I'd forgotten because I was so high that I was able to put into the book. What was the event that uh, led you to going to prison? I'd actually quit the importation of ecstasy a year before the SWAT team came. I've been married three times, I've met another woman. She taught me out of it. And because things were getting so heavy as well, she was like, look, this is really risky now. It's dangerous. The New Mexican Mafia guys, they'd all got federal SWAT team raided. I was almost at that house as the feds came. I was just dropping one of the guys off, actually. Would have got caught up in that. Sammy the Bulls crew got taken down. In the beginning, I'm thinking, thanks, cops, you've took out the competition. I should have been thinking it's going to be me next, but the drug scrambles your decision-making processes. It's telling you you can get away with anything. Mm. This woman talked some sense into me, and it was almost a year later, I thought I got away with it. I never got caught doing a big drug transaction, never got caught speaking about a big tr drug transaction on the phone, never even got caught with any drugs. But statute of limitations in Arizona is seven years, so I had to accept my karma cheerfully. Ten witness statements came forward, and SWAT team came May 16, 2002. How was that? So I was back to stock trading online. I was in, enrolled in college. Oh, you were back? Yeah, I was, I was trying to live a normal life with this woman now. Got it. Yeah, I'm, I'm stock trading online. I'm enrolled in a Spanish classes at college. Uh, I'm up early in the morning because Arizona time, New York time, stock market's open. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, boots thudding up the stairs of the apartment. And then bang, 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 bang. So I jump up. Look through the peephole, it's blacked out. I'm thinking, is it someone coming to rob me, posing as the police, who's found out, or is it really the police? Go to the window, police cars all over the place, marksmen with rifles, more boots coming up the stairs. Go through to the bedroom to my missus. What are we gonna do? Better let them in. Halfway through the living room, I'll never forget it, just boom! Ah. Just this door just flies off the hinges. Hands above your heads, don't move, get on the ground now so you see all those guns open up in front of you 
your heart almost hit my heart speeding up. I just feel the sweat coming on my heart. It's just almost reliving it right now. Um, you see those guns and you're thinking, your life is opening in seconds if they open up right now. And they're looking at you like they want to put one in you. So you just drop down real fast and they crush you. And the detective then, after they crushed us, the detective just yanked me up by the cuffs. And he was like, English Sean, you're a big name from the rave scene. We've finally got you. I'm sure this raid is gonna get you big charges. And he's just talking hella shit at me. Yeah, because I had a nemesis in, in, in law enforcement, yeah. So what happens next? So I'm thinking, hey, you know, I'm a bit, I'm, I don't understand the statute of limitations at this point. I do understand some things that the New Mexico Mafia schooled me on. And they, I got the lawyer that they recommended. So I'm thinking there's no drugs. They've not caught me speaking about drugs because I banned, you know, I wouldn't talk on phones or anything over the years. What can they do? I'm naively thinking they're going to say, well, there was no drugs. There's no charges. We're going to let him go. But they slapped on me. You're familiar with the Takashi 6ix9ine situation right now? It was the Arizona state equivalent of RICO. So now I've got conspiracy, continuous criminal enterprise, crime syndicate, all these charges. And I'm, I'm not um, versed enough in law to understand what they mean. It became apparent and I had to, because all my money was seized, I'd flown money, people over from England, put money in their names and the police had put a virus in my computer and netbus Trojan horse to show me where all the money was. So they took absolutely everything. You or, or the people you've flown from uh, UK, they I, took that they took money They took the money well. that was in their names. Everything, everything. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It was a multi-agency investigation. They had software engineers from Washington doing all this stuff with wiretapping my computer. I had to call my parents and say, look, I need money for a lawyer. And that was, you know, I'd st structured it. So if I got arrested, my friends would bail me out. They had money. Cops outsmarted me. They arrested all of us together. So, so you I, have nobody to call by your parents. How yeah. was that phone call like? Call them on your dad. It was one of the lowest points of my life. Just to hear um, the heartbreak in their voices, to hear, to feel how sick they're feeling that their son, who was a child protege, stock market guy, They'd come over and visited my million dollar house and I told them I was doing all stock trading. So I have to be like, look, here's what's gone down. And you know, if I don't get money, basically, I'm probably never gonna get out. Cause it got to the point where I was facing the 200 year maximum sentence. You yeah. get 200 year maximum sentence. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And similar to you're saying with uh, Takashi, cause he got 50, they're, they're talking 50, you got 200. Yeah, there's a lot of people on YouTube right now talking about Takashi and they have no idea what they're talking about. Even the hip hop channels, they're saying his, his trial's gonna be next year in September. He's, he's gonna get at least a minimum of 30 years because that's his minimum. The justice system is completely Alice in Wonderland. Those figures mean nothing. What will happen is the prosecutor over time will plea bargain with these guys. It won't even go to trial. That trial date, if, if it, you know, it's probably gonna get moved multiple times. They'll be in court every month filing motions, each side going back and forth, and you don't have to snitch. In my case, what we did, I met an old timer who was doing life, and he said, look, get a good lawyer and do what's called a united front. So in my case, I had over 100 people arrested with me only four agreed to cooperate. We had a united front under Alan Simpson, who was the lawyer that the New Mexican Mafia had represented. And Sammy the Bull's case, 57 people were arrested approximately, 
all agreed to testify. <laughs> yeah. So I think because we had this united front, hardly anybody snitched. It really frustrated the prosecutor. Over 26 months, they pulled out every dirty trick in the book on me. They, I mean, I was at the point where I was about to, to kill myself in the jail. It got so rough. Uh, but at the, end, at the end of the day, me, I was the head of the crime syndicate. Wild Woman was number two, Wild, wild Man's woman out of Liverpool. Wild Man was number three. And none of us got more than 10 years. So I thought that was, at the end of the day, that was really good because of the loophole my lawyer got as a first time non-violent drug offender, non-US citizen, I ended up serving just under six years. Just so what, what you're yeah. saying is you think similar things are gonna happen with Takashi 6 Yeah, what will happen with Takashi 6 right now? The prosecutor will have organized the criminal organization, the crime syndicate, in level of importance. So maybe Takashi will be B under Shotty, maybe mm -hmm. Shotty will be A, or maybe it will be the other way around just because they want to get to Kashi because he's the big headline that will enhance their careers. So they will then say to everybody, like F and K and, and L, they'll say to F, K and L, look, you guys are small down here. You're facing life sentences. You're all co-conspirators. You all go down for each other's crimes. You guys testify against these guys and we'll let you do time served. That's generally what they'll say, and that's what they were saying in my case. Now, they've separated Takashi 69. There's all this speculation saying he's snitched already, he's gone to prison for snitches. None of that is verified. I think it's far too early, probably, for any of these guys to just, just, just roll over the prosecutor. Shotty's obviously worried about it, because in court he's yelling out, don't fall, don't bend, in front of the judge, which is a really bad idea. That's not a good strategy. So I, I had a situation like that happen in my own case. Now, if you're forming a united front, how are you gonna get word through the prison system to your co-defendants mm -hmm. not to snitch? Well, they've separated Takashi, so it looks like he's snitching. So psychologically, that will work bad against the other co-defendants. But you can get what's called kites. These are letters sent by trustees throughout the jail system. We will send a letter from Takashi in this prison over to that prison. Those religious services. My guys, we, we had the whole two back rows of the religious services. We would all give, give, give each other our hugs and I'd update them on all the legal news. The other thing is, if Takashi's in a separate prison, when he goes to court with his co-defendants, they're gonna be in a row of holding cells right outside of the courtroom. Kites can be passed from cell to mm. cell through trustees. They can, they can stay tight, they can get the word out that they're doing a united front. Takashi's got the money to get such a high-priced lawyer to fight back. These low-level guys are thinking, right, we've got no money. We've got scumbag public defenders who just want us to sign plea bargains. These guys have got the money to get the high-priced lawyers. They're just going to let us end up getting, you know, we're going to have no legal representation. But Takashi right now needs to get the word out. We're doing a united front. I'm paying for a high-priced lawyer. I'm not snitching. And hope that everybody stays tight. Because once people start to snitch, then the sentence will go up for the people who are highest um, in the organization. So what happens? Walk us through. You're going to prison. How was that like? I mean, who were you? Who were you what prison did you go to? What level? Can I yeah, give us a little yeah. bit of that story? All right, so because I hadn't cooperated with the prosecutor, mm -hmm. they pulled out every dirty trick in the book. So in my first year in the jail, um, I've got this united front telling everybody not to agree. So the prosecutor's like, how can we get him away from his co-defendants? let's get him over to maximum security because all my co-defendants were in minimum medium security. Now how she did that, she knew I was applying to get my bail reduced. My bail was $750,000 cash only. She sabotaged the bail hearing. She, very crafty, these prosecutors. 
She filed additional charges and with an additional $750,000 bail. So the judge not, did he not only reduce my bail, he maintained my original bail, accepted the new bail, which made my total bail 1.5 million. When your bail goes over a million, you're automatically reclassified to maximum security. Autom so that's the guideline. Yeah. yeah, so that's how I ended up my second year in maximum security. Now, by the end of that, they're telling, that's where they're telling me, like, like, you're gonna get 200 years because every time you spoke about drugs on the phone carries five to 10 years, and this isn't deals, this is just personal, small stuff. If we go to trial and lose, we can stack that up to a maximum 200 year sentence. And they made it clear, there was a guy before me, a Tucson, out of Tucson, uh, a dealer, he had a similar case. He refused to sign a plea bargain for 15 years and they gave, he went to trial and they gave him 200? 200 years. 200. Every charge carried 10 years maximum and they stacked all of his charges. They, they, they didn't run them concurrently, they run them consecutively. The justice system is a business model. If you go to trial, it costs the state hundreds of thousands, millions. They want everyone to sign a plea bargain and go to the prison system just to bow down. 98% of the cases go to plea bargain, that's it, in Arizona. Only 2% exercise their right to a trial. If everybody exercised the right to a trial, the system would collapse. It couldn't afford to do all the trials. Got it. So that's how I ended up in the highest security levels because the prosecutor just had it in for us because we wouldn't, we wouldn't cooperate like Sammy the Bulls people. And so that kind of yeah. didn't favor you because they were hoping you would. They were hoping that we would. They thought we would because Sammy the Bulls people all did. They couldn't understand why we were so um, tight. But what happened was over the years, you know, I'd, knew these, I'd known these guys for years. I'd grown up with some of them. Mm. People were scared of wild men and the New Mexican Mafia guys with us. You know, we were just all this, in, in the jail. We were one of the biggest groups in the jail. All, everywhere we went, we were all hugging each other and updating each other and everything. Even people that didn't know me, the prosecutor had, was getting them to sign Exhibit A. People in my case that I didn't know saying, you bought your drugs from Atwood, you were working for Atwood. Because the prosecutor just makes stuff up. They don't care, they've got nothing to lose, they've got absolute immunity. So whatever they say, um, they portray people and, and doing things, a lot of time, that legal paperwork, it's utter bullshit, because they just want to put you in the, the worst light. They made me out to be the Antichrist. So they got all these people who don't even know me signing Exhibit A. One guy, Chicano gang member, he was in court with Exhibit A, and he says to the judge, look, Your Honor, I have no idea who Atwood is, and the prosecutor is telling me to, to sign and to sign this. Like, get, get back to the cells. Yeah. So you're in prison. What do you? You've never been in prison before. I'm assuming this is your first time. Yeah. So what? Yeah. What are you thinking? Like, who do I team up with? Oh my goodness. Who do I go to? Who do I associate myself I've with? I've seen Shawshank Redemption. So you go in there, and it's all racially divided, and it's the whites, the blacks, the Mexican Americans. So right away, some skinheads from the neo-Nazi Aryan Brotherhood come up to me hey, we want a word with you, get in that cell over there. Because I've been put in Tower 6, I wasn't with my co-defendants at this point in time. So I go into the cell, close the door behind me, biggest one gets in my face, he's like, what are your charges? What are your charges? Now, I mentioned my charges to you, I said earlier I didn't understand what all that meant, conspiracy and everything. So I said to him, I don't understand what my charges mean. That is not a good answer. Now they think I've got something to hide. So they got me up against the wall about to smash me. What do you mean you don't know what your charges mean? Are you a chomo? Are you a chomo? I don't even know what a chomo is at this point. Chomo's child molester. Mm. Yeah. So I, I, I pulled out my charge sheet. They saw I was in for drugs. The, the main business of the gang is selling drugs to the prisoners. So, so they love that. They saw my bail was $750,000. 
They were like, damn, are you guys the mafia? Who, who did you guys kill? And I was like, no, just raves, ecstasy. Then they explained the rules you gotta follow. If someone calls you a punk, a bitch, or hits you, fight them on the spot or else whole gang will smash you. Must take showers, they'll smash you for bad hygiene. Can't go make you friends with the guards, they'll smash you for snitching. Can't sit at the tables with the other races, they'll smash you for that, and so on and so on. Yeah. So it's giving you the lowdown. Oh, it? giving you lowdown right away. You sit in the wrong place. It's all over. What yeah. do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? It's all over if you sit in the if wrong you, place. If you sit with the other races, or if you, you go to the whites table and sit on like the head dude's seat, because you just think you're getting your lunch and that's just how it works, you're going to get your head smashed into a toilet. Yeah, 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 just like that. I had to get used to the sounds of heads getting bashed against toilets in there. Bodies getting thrown around. So who did you go with at, at that point? Like well, you've got no choice. They tell you, this is how it works. You're white, you know. If, if we have a meeting, you come to the white boy meeting, you sit with the whites, you in your cell, you're supposed to have white cellmates. Now, white, white supremacists or not white supremacists? This is just white. This is the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang. They've got, got the, it. They've got the swastikas, they've got the lightning bolts, they've got the warbirds. Yeah, yeah. They, you, they, they completely control the prison system for the white race. Were you required to get any of the tattoos and to symbolize no. that you're representing There's them? only a few actual equivalent to made men, gang members, shot callers and probates. And to join the Aryan Brotherhood, for example, the probates got to, to collect a debt, uh, beat someone up, get your SS lightning bolts, get your Swazi. To be a full member, you got to murder someone in the jail for them. Oh, you had to murder someone oh, yeah. to get a full... Uh, yeah, blood in, blood out. Yeah. So who, when you were in, you were in how many different types of prisons? Wow, over the course of this whole thing, I was in two remand jails, and then in the Arizona Department of... That was my first 26 months, and then over the Arizona Department of Corrections, about four or five different prisons, and then uh, finally a deportation facility. Now, I actually did time in super maximum security where I wasn't supposed to be. And that was because the prosecutor, a final farewell just to mess with me, mm -hmm. after I was sentenced, she accidentally put my nine and a half year sentence down as 34 years on the paperwork to the prison system. Your nine and a half to accidentally, she, did it, she put it down as 34? Yeah, just to mess with me. So I got fast tracked to supermax. How was that? Well, looking back now, I'm glad that she did all this stuff because it's created a more extreme story. So, Supermax, my cellmate was, he had like a pentagram tattooed on his forehead, part of a cult that's um, doing, drinking blood and doing human sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. This is who you were in, in with? This is in Supermax Security. Supermax Security is killers, serial killers, death row, shit slingers. There's a whole row of shit slingers because you can't settle your disputes in Supermax with yeah. fists because you're locked in your cell. They weaponize crap. So the basic method of that is a chicken bone, blowpipe, crap on the chicken bone. You're going past the cell, they dart you. Chicken bone gets into your blood system. Your blood circulates the crap throughout your, your damages your immune system and Two thirds of these guys have got hepatitis C just from sharing dirty needles. That's the basic method. The Rambo of the shit slingers was this guy called Magnum, and he would let the shit piss concoction, he would leave it for days until mold grew on it, and he rigged his cell up with like crap Uzis. He'd make shampoo bottles into bazookas 
with tubes on them. And then when a guard goes past, or the, the staff trying to get got, yeah, a guard or, or a prisoner, um, he just, just opened fire on them. And they came in, they stripped him out, took everything out of his cell, put him in a dry cell, naked, handcuffed, and they figured that was it. He wasn't going to be able to get them that day. They'd underestimated his resolve. Magnum stood at the front of that cell with molten crap in his mouth. And when the guard came and, Malt and Magnum unleashed the molten crap, at the, at the, the guard was so surprised and shocked, he raised his mask up and some of the crap went up his nose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you've seen some interesting things at the Super Maximum. Which, How long was it? How long were you at the Super Maximum? I was in the Super Maximum about three or four months before my sentence got fixed by my lawyer to what it should have been in the first place. So Sean, how many different levels are there in prison system in the, I've been in the every, US? I've been in every security level from Supermax to minimum. Yeah, how many are the levels from the minimum to Supermax? It depends on whether it's federal or state and how many prisons the system has got. So there might be like, and the UK is different from the US, but in general, this is a generalization, you could say there's minimum, medium, maximum, super maximum, but there's all kinds of other types of facilities as well, such as lockdowns and things like that. Got it. Yeah. So uh, when you're in prison, I mean, I'm, I'm hearing there's access to everything. You can buy drugs, you can yeah. buy steroids, you have phones you can buy. What was the biggest commodity? What was the most drugs. expensive? Drugs. drugs. And that was what causes the most violence and death and murder. The illegal market in drugs, they estimate it's worth a trillion dollars a year right now. That has corrupted everything it comes into contact with, including the prison system. Mm -hmm. When you go f start arresting people who are mostly got addiction issues, a lot of my friends in prison were Marines, come back from wars, PTSD, got on street drugs, ended up in prison. The highest arrest category back then when I was arrested was weed possession. Wow. A million arrests a year almost for weed possession. A million a year. And they come to prison and graduate to heroin and crystal meth. So the absolute priority of the drug gang is this, you've got this ideal target marketplace of addicts. Mm. So guards are smuggling drugs in for the gangs. Nurse was arrested bringing drugs in for the Mexican mafia while I was there. Drugs are getting dropped off in drones these days. Visitors are bringing drugs to visitation in the lower security levels. There is more drugs in prison than anywhere on the face of the earth. The dealers in prison are boasting that they're making more money inside than they were selling drugs before they were arrested. Where do they keep the money? Where do they keep the cash? It's a street to street. Oh, got it. Yeah, so say you're my dealer in prison yes. and I'm a customer. Yep. Your woman outside goes and pays my woman outside a visit and you know, cash is exchanged. I got it. Yeah. And it's still taking place. Street to street. And so hoping when I come out, I have some cash sitting around that's waiting for me. If you're an entrepreneur. If you're an entrepreneur. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. You're in, you had some dealings with the Mexican Mafia, but the Mexican Mafia connection for you wasn't in prison. That happened prior to that in yeah, Arizona, right? Yeah, yeah. And how close did you get with them? All right, so I mentioned Wildman's first visit. Yes. Wildman opened a lot of doors for me because, like I mentioned about my anxiety and stuff, mm -hmm. he... Wherever he goes, people take notice. He's 25, 26 stone. Um, I'm trying to think what the American equivalent of that is now. Maybe like 250, 300 pounds. His nose is pointing over here. His fists are twice the size of mine. He's just got all human teeth marks all over his knuckles. So at these apartment parties we were f throwing in the early exit days, he'd have like Russian mobsters coming up, Mexican gangsters coming over, transgender, Native Americans, 
street gangbangers, just this eclectic mix of people. And that's how I got to meet all these different people. Now, at one of these apartment parties, I was supplying the ecstasy and this ruggedly handsome Mexican-American guy shows up with long, dark hair, prison tattoos on his arms, and he's supplying the coke and the weed. So as we're both the suppliers, we start um, chilling and talking, and a, a 10p policeman walks in. He goes, I could smell weed from outside. Nobody move. So G-Dog, the Mexican-American guy's name is, and I've never seen anything like this before, just whips out his gun, points at the cop's head, says the only one who's not leaving is you motherfucker, everybody run. So I'm like, holy fuck, you know, I'm just like, shit, we're all gonna get arrested now. I've got drugs on me. So we all, we all just ran off into the night basically. Now this was a huge apartment complex called Rancho Marietta in Tempe, Arizona. It's got all these other buildings. And as part of my organization, when I had people in apartments, we would structure apartment complexes. So like the, the, the drugs are here, the cash is here in another apartment and protection is over here in another apartment. So if anything went off, we could move everything around very quickly. Mm. So I went off into one of these other apartments and um, all hell's breaking loose now. Police, sirens. And so we're all in there thinking, cops are gonna come, should we flush our stuff? Next thing, bang, 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 bang on the French window. Is it the cops? We open the French window, it's G-Dog. He's like, let, let me in. So he says, the police haven't got a warrant. He schooled us. They can't come in without a warrant. They haven't seen me come in here. Turn the lights off. Everybody shut the f up. Nobody move. If they come, just don't open the door. Mm. So we were debating whether we were, whether to flush the drugs or not. And he's like, don't sweat it. So he was right. The cops came and they knocked on the door. We didn't answer. They went next door. They went all over the complex. And at the end of the night, I said to him, look, because you're so hot here, why don't you come over to a house I've got in Phoenix? So that's what, what we did, and he stayed there. And then he said, Sean, because you and your friends had my back, me and my brothers have got your back. I had no idea what that meant. So a couple of months later, he goes, my brother wants to meet you. So I go over to this street in Tempe. They got all these low rider fancy show cars mm. on the street. Go to the front door. His brother's like, short guy, no her. Wife beater on, shorts down to here, just looking up at me with this mean face. Then he hears me speaking, he's like, damn, you talk funny, homie. He's like, I, I guess you are from England. Come through and meet my homies. So I go into the living room with G-Dog. And there's all these massive tattooed Mexican-American guys. They've got the chains on. They're looking at me like they want to eat me. You know, like, who is this guy? They've got like guns, AKs, mini machine guns slabs of crystal meth, slabs of cocaine, weighing scales. I'm looking around the room, see the biggest TV I've ever seen. They've got a, a little screen watching all the comings and goings on the street. And I'm like, holy shit, that's not an ornament. I saw that in a Rambo movie. A rocket propelled grenade launch on the TV. Yeah. So I'm thinking these guys are heavy duty and I was always nervous every time I went over there. Except for one time they said, look, our women are coming over and we're going to have an ecstasy party and we're going to try your stuff out. So I went over there. Oh, going back to the first time, one of them actually swung a spoonful of coke in my face that first time. And he's like, snort this. And I'm looking over at you, he's like, yeah, snort it. Just to see if I was a cop, you know? And that guy, I won't say his name, but when I did learn who they were, that guy was actually a hitman who, who, who'd done quite, was putting in quite a lot of work at that point in time. Yeah. So they say we're having this ecstasy party. 
and I go over in the night because they've run out of pills and they're all on ecstasy for the first time. But these guys, when I got over there, like these big, sweaty, overgrown teddy bears, picking me up, bear hugging me, England man, we love your pills, trying to tell me their life stories. Um, but every time I went over there after that, it was back to that lethal atmosphere. Now, the only way I learned who they was was because years later, I was dropping G-Dog off one night and the whole neighborhood was blacked out. The police were out with light ones guiding traffic. Mm. As we pull up to the house, federal SWAT team are bringing all these guys out in handcuffs and we just kept going. And it was news headlines that night. New Mexican Mafia, most powerful, violent criminal organization in Arizona. They tried to assassinate the head of the Department of Corrections, the prison system. They were taking out witnesses, police, um, all kinds. So the good thing that came about was my debts were in the hundreds of thousands and people knew I was clicked up with them mm -hmm. and the money started to come in a little bit faster. Yeah. So that was your experience with the make which yeah, which, yeah. which one of the which one of the gangs in prison were the most feared? Okay. I mean, it varies probably prison by prison, yeah. but from your experience. In prison, what happens is the numbers with the most picks on the numbers with the least. It's a shame because, well, I say it's a shame, but from a power play move, the Chicanos, the Mexican-Americans, and the Mexicans, they would be the biggest, but they're at war in the Arizona prison system. Yeah, they've been at war since the 1990s. If they were united, they would be... If they were be... united, they'd be the biggest. Where I was housed in medium security in the beginning, I would say it was the Mexicans, Mexican-Americans, slightly over half, then the whites, then the blacks, less than a quarter, and the Native Americans and others, a fraction. In America, we U.S. is roughly 4.4% of the world population, is what yeah. U.S. has, right? But... They have 22% of world's prisoners. So 4.4% world population, 22% prisoners. And uh, when you study the stats, 1950, per 100,000, we had 150 prisoners. Per 100,000, yeah. 150. Today, that number's around 700. And over a half of 50% uh, of the prisoners today are in because of drug charges. That's what changed the yeah. war against drugs. You know, when you were in, did you see some guys who were like, that guy just doesn't belong in here. You know, he, he should go on a different route. And do you think sometimes the association of a guy that got him for weed or something like that, being around others, he learned other bad habits that when he got out, he brought that, you know, habit into the streets. What are your thoughts having experience with that? The mass incarceration of low-level drug users is incentivized by a conspiracy between politicians, legislators, the private prisons, and all of the other predatory contractors making money off this. So the media puts out these headlines saying prisons are for murderers, rapists, pedophiles, drug traffickers like Pablo Escobar. And on the other side, they say how easy prison is to keep the public hating on prisoners. But the average arrest was a black kid or a Mexican kid with a bit of weed getting a two to five year sentence from what I saw. And so, did you meet kids in prison where you're looking at them? When I say kids, yeah, I'm saying... That was the average arrest. Yeah, yeah. So, were you like, why are you in? What Prisons are, you... are full of these people. Almost a million arrests a year for weed possession in America at the height of the war on drugs. Let me ask you, having experienced different levels, what would you suggest? What would you... Because uh, 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 in the UK, you guys are all like 125 per 100,000, right? And it's different... We're in... the highest incarceration rate in Europe because the same political private prison influences 
are corrupt in our system here. They tried to open the biggest kids prison in the Western world in this country last year. The prison was gonna get $100,000 plus per year of taxpayers' money per kid. They estimate half of young people experiment with drugs. They can fill it up with young kids on drugs all day long. It went to House of Lords and Lords said, is this something we're gonna be proud of? And they shut it down. They shut it down. But the politicians and the corporations are still trying to get it pushed through. So, so there's, a, there's a battle there, right? One is, uh, somebody's watching this, they're saying, oh my gosh, but he, you, know, you, you gave ecstasy to people, you're a drug dealer, you, you, know, you have a lot of kids that you taught, taught them a lot of bad habits, you know, and uh, you, you, you hurt some families, that's what you did. Okay, fine, and then there are those people that will say, yeah, but let's just say a guy that's doing weed, should he be going to prison? What should, it's not fair for him to go to prison, but we gotta keep the drug dealers off the street. The balance of it, how do you balance that up for somebody that's seen this yourself? Right, I write about the war on drugs. People like Pablo Escobar, Cali Cartel, America Made, things like that. So I've researched this thoroughly. You've raised a few separate points there. I take full responsibility for what I did. I deserve to be punished. I got off lightly by having a high-priced lawyer and doing a united front defense. I learned a lot of lessons in prison. I'm actually the poster child for it, but Arizona's got the highest incarceration, and highest um, re-offending according to FBI stats, some of the highest in the country. You're talking about recent division type of uh, stats? Yeah, I'm talking about FBI stats, yeah, over the years that I've looked at. What is the purpose of prisons and the police? The police was started out of London by Robert Peel. If you look how crime has been defined for millennia, murder, robbery, rape, Drug traffickers like myself, not excusing that. Person A murders, rapes, robs person B. Mm -hmm. There's always a victim. Mm -hmm. When they ramped up the war on drugs and said, who are the easiest people to arrest kids with weed? When you arrest a kid with weed, who's that person hurting? Himself? Yeah, yeah. himself. Sure. So the whole purpose of the police, which was to take person A out of society that hurts, hurts person B, has been subverted by the war on drugs. A kid with weed is hurting themselves, maybe their family, that's a cry for help. That kids need mentorship. That kid may need some mental health counseling. That kid needs encouragement in life. And what do we do with them? We put them in a place where they're gonna get indoctrinated by a neo-Nazi gang who idolize getting Hitler tattoos and swastikas and you've got to murder someone to be a full member and you're going to make your criminal connections and they're going to give you a swastika on your forehead so when you get out and go for a job interview you can't get a job you're going to come right back to the gang mm. and the jail is going to say hey if we educate these people if we give them the high school diplomas when they get out they're going to stand a chance in life no let's allow it to be drug and gang infested mayhem because when they get out we'll give them $50 gate money say have a nice day they're going to go right back to crime because it's drug and gang Invested man yeah. here, and when they get arrested, fifty thousand dollars of taxpayers' money per year, right back to the to the jail or the prison. I think it's up to seventy thousand now. I'm just quoting figures from when I got arrested. Mm. So wreck yeah. it on the taxpayers' the, shakedown. I, I see that. So the the percentage that I saw is after one year, fifty six percent fifty six percent of prisoners make it back in. Yeah. Three years is sixty seven percent. Five years is seventy six percent. So once you go in there's a very high likelihood of you getting back in within the next one, three, five years. Corrections Corporation are boasting in the annual reports of their shareholders. Our profit growth is guaranteed because they keep coming back. They're not correcting people, they're breaking them. So Sean, let me ask you, two people, if you're speaking to somebody right now, a kid who's 22 years old, yeah. messing around with stuff, selling weed, selling coke, selling ecstasy, selling whatever it is he's selling on the streets. What do you tell someone like that? Because when you're in it, sometimes, you know, I, I remember when I was coming up, I was doing my own 
version of things, and you almost feel like you're not infamous, untouchable. Like I can get away, I can outsmart the system, right? Yeah. What would you t- say to somebody that's in that moment saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to be able to get away? Well, he got caught, but I'm not going to get caught. I felt like I was above the law, and the drugs was telling me that we were joking. That we we're above the law. We're living in a movie. Drugs scrambles your decision-making processes. Mm. You're not thinking normally. I surrounded myself with equally crazy people, reinforcing each other's insane behavior. I would say to those kids that these prisons and these politicians, the contracts in the tens of billions, they want you out doing drugs. They look at you as suckers to arrest because they know they're going to get you eventually and make money off your back. Now, what I didn't understand is the road of drug use is very long. The pleasure's extremely high in the beginning and the pain is low. You don't see what's coming at you down that road when you're a young person because the, the pleasure's so high. You're always chasing that early high, but you never get it back. So you mix your drugs up or you move on to harder drugs over time. In the background, the pain is slowly rising. And when it crosses, if you're addicted, you can't stop. I only learned this in the jail. It made me ashamed of putting people on that road. And I knew I couldn't change my past, so I, I, my main thing is now is telling school kids my story so they won't do what I did. But in the jail, I saw the horror of what drug use led to. 90% shooting up heroin, crystal meth, two-thirds hepatitis C, 90%, 90% yellow jaundice skin, teeth rotting out. And I thought to myself, I put people on that road you know, I, sh- I should be ashamed. Now, to treat all those guys with hepatitis C, interferon, 30,000 a year, would bankrupt the system. So they say to them, you know, you're not getting the treatment. Some sue in court, they got money or they got legal skills, and it takes years just to get the treatment. And by then the liver, it might have advanced and they, they, may, it, they can't even be saved anyway. Some of them would win the treatment after this big court battle. And the final hurdle was, Right, congratulations, you've won your treatment. Treatment doesn't work unless you stop the drugs. Now you've got to stop the drugs. And some of those guys were so addicted, they would keep doing the drugs and choose to die rather than save their own lives. That is the power of addiction. So my point here is young people, think about what's going to come at you down that road. I was given a, a, a front row seat and it's an absolute horror show. Now, if you've got an addictive personality like me, there's nothing wrong with channeling that energy into positive addictions. Mm. So I put it, you know, I do karate, I do body combat, yoga and meditation really got my anxiety down, saved my sanity in, in the Interesting. Prison. Yeah, yeah. When's the last time you touched drugs? I didn't touch drugs um, since I got arrested, yeah. Oh, since you got arrested, you haven't touched any? I stopped any. it, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so, and so let me ask you, you haven't been in since you got out. No. What did you do to make sure you didn't get in? Because you, you know, it's very easy to come yeah. to UK and maybe use some of those habits here because your crime was in Arizona. You can start a new thing over here. How come you didn't do Various it? Various factors stopped me going okay. back. I read over a thousand books in just under six years, a lot of philosophy and psychology, and they enabled me to go deep inside myself and address the root causes and not to go back to it. The therapist said, if you give something up, an addiction, even if it's a negative one, there's a space inside you and you've got to fill it. Mm. You've got to replace it. Karate, body combat, exercise, yoga, these things, they keep me level-headed. I still go out and dance my ass off all night at some of these clubs like Ministry. You should check Ministry out while you're here. Or some of the gay bars of Clapham Common where they've got the hands in the air dance moves in. I just close my eyes, get into the vibe and dance and feel those endorphins cascading. Physical movement causes the, the brain to release the chemicals, the endorphins to cascade. You don't have to be doing these other things. It's just, it's just a shortcut. Physical activity can get you. Sports is a great one for young people, I, I advocate, yeah. 
So you you replace the bad habit with something else. That's what she does with yes. the psychology. Yes. So so you know, and I know you give away a lot of books nowadays. You you're you're, yeah. you're in the business of giving away books. I do public events, and I'm a bestseller on Amazon. I've got almost ten books out. My life story is party time, hard time, prison time, and from the profits from my sales at my public events, I donate books to kids in state schools and to prisoners. And in the last three years now, I've managed to donate twenty thousand books do yoga, believe in karma. All these kind blog readers sent me books from all over the world because my writing was smuggled out of the jail. It went on to attract international media attention. All these kind people, it was like a real Shawshank Redemption moment, were filling the prison library up. So I give back now to these kids and these prisoners in the hope that reading will help them in their journey. And then the last question I'll, I'll, uh, I'll ask you is we addressed it a little bit. I'm curious to know what you're going to say. Obviously, you've You've thought about this. I'm in the financial industry. So for me, everything within the industry, I have to study because I'm in that space. I'm in the yeah. insurance space. The good, bad, and the ugly. What would be the solution? Like, what would really be the solution to not have some of these petty uh, crimes that people are doing to put them in prison? Do you separate petty crime, you know, petty criminals in different prisons? Do you put them through a 90-day probationary school kind of system where you're on lockdown? What would your suggestion be? I say this in the UK to people, we shouldn't be following the American model. We should be following the countries that are closing prisons down right now because they've got spur capacity. So petty crime, like I said, it's low level drug use. Should that even be a crime? These people need help. Portugal had over 100,000 heroin addicts. They were following the American model. They said, this is not working anymore. Let's legalize, let's decriminalize, let's see what happens. The police said, if you do that, what kind of an example does it set to young people? Decriminalizing heroin, there'll be people doing this all over the streets. What actually happened was the addicts were no longer afraid of getting arrested. They talked to the health teams who counseled them and Portugal more than halved the heroin addicts. Of all of the types of drug users, heroin is a minuscule amount of drug use, but disproportionately it causes the most petty crime, uh, shoplifting, um, burglaries, which isn't petty crime, it's more serious, and, and acquisitive crime, it causes the, the majority of it. When you legalize and decriminalize, because it doesn't cost much to, much to give these guys medicinal grade, mm -hmm. uh, opium is just a plant that costs hardly anything, doesn't cost the taxpayer much, then they don't have to go out stealing all day. So the, the petty crime around it collapsed as well. And the, the transmission of diseases from sharing dirty needles. It would be interesting because, you know, when you go to Alcatraz, the first thing they do when you go to San Francisco, I don't know if you've been, they show you the yeah. stats. Here's how many people have done this. Here's how many people are in prison. Here's how many inmates we have. Here's what's going on with this. Here's what's going on with America. Here's where America ranks. Mm -hmm. I think number one and then number two is Russia. And then you see the stats going down. Yeah. I don't know if America's figured out the perfect solution on how to do this. I saw there's a $76 billion a year number that we spend for uh, prisons, and this is a 2011 stat, is what I saw. I don't know if we figured out the way, but I do believe that there needs to be major adjustments being made because the direction we're going in, it, it, this current stat is one in 20 Americans will at one point go to prison. Yeah. One in 20. That's a pretty big number to have one in 20 go to prison. Yeah. So either, you know, it doesn't need to be that many going or there needs to be a better step process. One, two, three on what happens and how you go to it. What are your thoughts on that? America does have it figured out exactly where it wants it. This is old school money. 
They don't want any changes. They want to be profiting tens of billions a year in contracts off this private prison system. That's just the private prisons. Include the prison guard unions, includes the lawyers, include all of the contractors to the prisons. There's like a pipeline to prison program in America now to enhance this. Ca cash to kids judges. The old money wants to maintain this. US federal government has got weed as a schedule one substance more harmful than crystal meth and cocaine with no medicinal value whatsoever because that's what maximizes corporate profits. They're not interested in the welfare of these young people who are getting tossed into, into these prisons. There's people doing 25 to life for joints of weed on the three strikes laws. There's people doing it uh, for pe stealing pizzas 25 to life in California. They tried to repeal the three strikes law in California. 25 to life for stealing a pizza guy was doing. 50,000 a year, 1.25 million for $10 pizza. Why are we, the taxpayers of California, paying for this? When it went to get repealed, people who put money up, put money up to get it introduced, stopped it getting repealed. Prison Guards Union of California, Broadcom, exclusive provider of telephone services to the California state prison system. The taxpayers' money is a feeding trough to the corporations, to these parasites. The, con the political contributions to the legislators and the politicians coming down are in the tens of millions. Why change that? It's just one big money go around by a select group of people. But what's happened is the American people are sick of it. At the state level, you guys are now voting to legalize and decriminalize weed. That's not the US federal government, that's the people. The people over there are sick of their kids getting thrown in these prisons where they just graduate to harder crime. They're sick of their kids who are having the seizures can't get the cannabis oil, going into comas and dying. All these evil politicians who've maintained this for years have caused all these kids to die over the years who couldn't get their medicine. But when you now produce a kid on the internet and technology is making all this word spread so fast, these evil politicians can't go up against these dying kids. And that's how it's fallen and fallen at the state level. And that's the hope. I think the floodgate is open now and the whole thing is going to collapse. Yeah, that's what you foresee taking place. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Sean, final thoughts for you. What are your final thoughts you have? If you were to say, here's my experiences, here's what I've learned, here's what I suggest, what would you say? I'd like to say to, to the fellas in prison especially, and entrepreneurs outside, I've seen parallels in both worlds. Mm -hmm. You know, as a best-selling author now on Amazon, I've got to have a good product, I've got to know how to market my product, I've got to have relationships with the right people. If you're in, in prison because you were running a drug business, you've got all those skills, mm -hmm. plus, you were watching your back, avoiding the police, doing all this other stuff as well. Your skill set is enhanced. So I hope that people who see me, I've got out of prison, become a, a success story. I hope that inspires them to do well in the world as well. What book would you uh, suggest the, the viewer to read? I think because of the way you've structured this interview, yes. people are gonna be most interested in my years before I got arrested and my jail time. So that party time is everything when I got arrested, my dealings with the mafia, rising up the ranks in the ecstasy world. And then hard time is first going into the jail. That's, that was the, the deadliest uh, period of time for me. I've also got hundreds of questions answered on my YouTube prison questions playlist as well. Yeah, you, he, by the way, he has stuff that he talks about. Pablo Escobar, you talk about how the Cali worked with you know, the DEA to help take out Pablo. It's a real interesting yeah, things yeah. you talk about uh, on your channel. But if you got anything you took away, you got questions for Sean, he's on Twitter. I know you and I were going back yeah. and forth yesterday on Twitter. Send him a tweet or send me a tweet based on what you took away 
from this interview. And if you got any questions for him, shoot the questions over to him as well. With that being said, Sean, yes, thank cheers, you so much Patrick. for your time. Yeah, Appreciate your time. Thank truly. you. Yeah, Thanks cheers. for coming out. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.